Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a deck. Lights, 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 lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Claire Bartlett, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I played the role of Watts. Savannah Mazda, London, England, by way of Queens, New York, and I played the role of Malone. Joel Sanchez, Chatsworth, Georgia, and I played the role of Abel. Lights up on a windowless office conference room. On the wall is one of those inspirational posters featuring a photo of a large tree in the words, Mighty Oaks from Little Acorns Grow. Malone pushes a button on a conference phone. That's it. Nothing to be done here. Hello? Hello? Crap. These things never work. If we dialed in earlier and we weren't here, you know, always wait to the last moment. Don't blame me, it's the technology. Let's try one more time. We're here already, what's the good of giving up now? All right, you got the number? Show me, show me. Watt shows the phone to Malone. Welcome to the government teleconference system. For service in English, the meeting organizer has not yet started the conference. If you are the organizer, press... Please enter your conference ID, followed by... Don't forget the pound key, it's the little thing, but... Please enter your conference passcode, followed by... Please say your name, followed by the Malone. pound key. Malone! What? Malone fails to move, so Watt reaches over and proudly hits the pound key. You will now be entered into the conference. Hello? Hello? See? Nothing ever changes. You sure it was here? Yes. And this afternoon? Yes, same place, same time as yesterday. Didn't work yesterday either. That's why we're trying again, today. He said Monday. That was yesterday. He changed it to Tuesday. Today. Still, it has a Wednesday feel to it, don't you think? Oh, I wish it was Friday. Or Thursday. Thursday's nice. You know, just knowing that tomorrow's Friday. Let's just hang up. We can't. Why not? We're waiting. For someone to say hello. And that's how these things work. Or don't work. So, what'd you do on the weekend? You know, Saturday, Sunday. Didn't you ask me this yesterday? No, I would have remembered. So... The usual, taking my kids to their hockey game, their swimming, skating, tennis, golf. They uh, do so many things. Happy days. I made a nice stew, lamb, chicken, garlic, kidneys, carrots, turnips, radishes, and red wine. The dog was running up and down, hoping to snag some scraps. And, and hockey's always early after a rotten night's sleep. You had to get up and piss a bunch of times. You're at that age? <gasps> what? No. It was mice in the attic. They come in from the cold. Our house is a haven for them. You can hear them scurrying, rustling. Scurrying, rustling? You should have been a poet. Every night, if only I could sleep. Returning to the conference call hardware and tapping buttons.
Maybe the system's gone to sleep. Or we've lost our logon rights. Maybe they've expired. There is a very quiet, incomprehensible sound from the conference call speaker. Watt is closer to it at this point. Wait! Putting her ear close to the phone. Shh! Listen! I heard nothing. I thought it was him. Hello? What did you say? You're hearing things. Text IT. They can always figure it out. Watt retires to the background to text IT on her cell phone. What's the point of all this if it never works? We might as well tramp on over there and go see him in person. But that would take two days. We've been waiting here for two days, haven't we? At least we get to talk to people along the way instead of being trapped in a room waiting for something to happen. It's all pensionable time. There's got to be more interesting ways to spend one's life. IT's on the way. How long is that going to take? Another two days? It says it'll be right up. Sure. Who's coming? Name's Abel. <laughs> Abel. We'll see about that. Suddenly, a few quiet, garbled words on the conference phone. Malone is now closer to it. Did, did you hear that? No. Thought I heard a whispering, you know? A murmuring. <clears throat> Louder! I don't hear a word you're saying! Abel walks in, trailing a long computer cable behind. No matter how far Abel comes into the room, we never see the end of it. You the guys with the conference call problem? Que voulez-vous? We've been trying to connect for ages. It's kind of depressing. Of course you're depressed in this windowless room. You can't see the sun. You can't see the moon. Thanks for coming so quickly. My pleasure. The more people I meet, the happier I become. And the more people on this conference call, the happier I'll become. Why isn't it working? The reason is this. Picks up something electronic. These wireless devices. No one ever puts them where the signal's strongest. Where's that? Well, you can never be sure. We have to experiment. Here, take this. Abel gives the conference phone base unit to Malone. Now up. Up. Back. Turn. Closer. Stop! Shh! Jesus, what is this, a pantomime? <sighs> I don't hear anything. Raise it up. Malone raises it. Hello? Nope, nothing. Once more. Malone stretches still higher. Still nothing! Huh. Half wit. What? Look. This is pointless. Why are we still here? We can't leave now. Not now. We put in all this time. He's bound to connect eventually, and when he does... Things will actually start happening? Most definitely. God. Oh, God have mercy on me. Malone goes to shake hard some piece of the conference phone equipment, but then there is a power cut, and they are momentarily in the glow of one circular emergency light. Malone gets caught in the tangle of wires on the floor, trips, and bruises her shins. The power is restored, but the lights come back on at a noticeably lower level. The systems will now reboot. That's IT's answer for everything, isn't it? We might get lucky. And what about the lights? It's better like this for the projector. Tapping the phone. Maybe the memory's defective. 
It could it be the cloud? The cloud? And maybe he's lost in the cloud, entangled in the net. Possibly. Are you new at this? Have you fixed this kind of thing before? Or is this your first time? So, what's the conference call number? Starts checking his cell phone. She's got it. Pulls out her cell phone. Yeah, here. Ugh, it's gone. Oh, for goodness sake. Pulls out her cell phone. Now they are all thumbing through their phones. I had it a minute ago. Let me see. Takes Watt's phone. No, it's it's not in mine. What have you got? Here, let me see. Takes Malone's phone. It starts with a three. Do you see a three? Takes Abel's phone. No. You've got a number beginning with a four. Yes, it was a four. Takes Abel's phone from Watt. Are you sure? Because you're contradicting each other. Takes Watt's phone from Abel. Yes, I'm sure. I dialed it. Let's try them all. We're bound to hit on the right one sooner or later. Takes Malone's phone from Abel. The phones all ring simultaneously. They realize their own phone is with someone else and scramble to recover their own phones and answer the rings. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They all nod in unison a couple of times. Not now. Not now. Not I'm now. busy. I'm busy. They hang up. Referring to the conference system. Well, if he doesn't call today, I'm sure he'll call tomorrow. How do you know? Perhaps he can see into the future. I'll come again tomorrow, if you have the same trouble. And will you have the same solution? I'll bring a new cable, a longer one with more resistance. Abel is about to leave. Oh, our customer satisfaction survey. How did you find my service on a five-point scale? Good, fair, middling, poor, or positively bad? Oh, very good. Trayvon. That's realistic. Are you kidding me? It's absurd. Adieu. Merci. Abel leaves. What do we do now? What's the end game here? A sudden murmuring, mumbling sound from the speaker. They both hear it. Runs to the speaker and puts her ear to it. Yes? Yes, what did you say? Runs to the door to shout after Abel. I come back! We heard... He's gone! Hello? Hello? Come back! He's gone. Do you tell your kids that if they work hard in school, they can grow up to do exactly what they want to do with their lives? Of course I do. And did you work hard in school? Absolutely. Straight A's. And are you doing exactly what you want to do with your life? Well, it... Wouldn't you rather be somewhere else? Too late for regrets. Might get better. Picking up the conference equipment. You know whose fault this is? Microsoft. Bill Gates. What a moron. What a cretin. <clears throat> Ape. <laughs> Rat. Cockroach. Billionaire. Philanthropist. I wonder how many people around the world are just like us right now, stuck in this semi-darkness, quietly waiting for something to happen. If you add up all the time we've wasted over the past two days. The past two hours. Even the last ten minutes have been a complete waste of time. The time we won't get back. Why don't we just leave? Yeah, let's leave. They look at the conference system. But do not move. Lights fade. Hey, everybody. 
It's Gary, the producer for Lights Up, Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga's new podcast for playwrights, performers, and patrons of theater. I wanted to see if you've heard about Anchor. Anchor, the platform that's hosting our podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor yet, well, I am happy to be the first to tell you about it. It is free. F-R-E-E. That's right, free. Um, There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer uh, or your phone. And Anchor will distribute the podcast that you create so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And you know what else? It doesn't cost you anything, but you can make money from your podcast, and you don't even have to have a minimum listenership. That's right. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So do like we did. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, or anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R.fm to get started and create your podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Lights Up Season 2. We are so glad that everyone has joined us again. As you may know, I am Dana Cole Giovanni, and I am joined again. We are welcoming back our wonderful guest co-host, Chelsea Carboni. Hey, it's good to be back. We're so happy to have you. (laughs) So this week, we have Guy Newsham, who has written Waiting for Hello. And hello, Guy. (laughs) Yes, hello. Hello, hello. Are we on? Hello, hello. Hello. Nice to to meet you this way. Guy, uh, you're originally from Ontario. Well, originally I was born in England um, and went to school there and then moved to Canada after grad school. uh, And I've lived in Ottawa, Ontario. What was the impetus for the move to Canada? Well, at the time, this was 1990, um, the the job prospects for for someone like me, I'm I'm professionally trained as a scientist. um, So I've worked as a federal government scientist for my career. Uh, Job prospects were better here. um, And I had a good friend from grad school who who was from Canada, who was doing his grad studies in England. uh, And so he kind of suggested that I could try applying here. And I did. And the usual story came for two years and stayed for more than that. (laughs) (laughs) So when you said grad school, not theater at all, theater was not part of your education plan? That is correct. Uh, Yes. Um, Unlike some of the folks you've had on this series already, uh, I have no, uh, you know, full disclosure, I have no formal training in theater at all. Uh, This this is, I'm an enthusiastic amateur. Uh, When I came to Canada, I thought that'd be a great way to meet people since I'm moving here by myself. Uh, and just got involved in community theatre, and that's been uh, how I've come to where I am now. First, I think you might be the first scientist we've had on the podcast. Yes, that's pretty awesome. (laughs) We're rare beasts. That is great. I was going to ask you, actually, how you go from, how did you go from scientist to playwright? So that's, that's great. I never thought of that. How do you meet new people? Let's write a play. (laughs) Get involved with theatre. I love that. So did you, when you started, was that your gateway in? You were you started writing or were you acting in, in a show first and then you somehow tripped into writing? Well, it's a bit, bit of a mixture. Uh, I'd say my gateway in really was, was acting um, and was involved in community theater, a number of productions 
for a number of years and then um, did nothing for a while and then came back to it about five years ago. Um, but I've always in the background always had this interest in writing and I tried writing novels for a while and short stories for a while and never got anywhere with that and then when I came back to theatre about four or five years ago um, there wasn't anything I could audition for at the time but there was a playwriting group so I thought well I'll, that'll be my way back in uh, and joined a small playwriting group and uh, what are some differences that you have there from writing a novel versus writing plays and has one helped you with the other well certainly this is going to sound kind of silly but i would say like a 10 minute play it's a lot easier to write eight pages of dialogue than to write 160 pages of prose uh, it's a lot less intimidating to sit down and and get that first draft out uh, whereas novels it takes you a lot longer to find out you haven't got much on the page and so <laughs> It's a really good way to start, and I think I, even when I was write, trying to write novels or short stories, I, I think I found that, that dialogue was what I was good at. And so coming from a science background, how does that relate to your playwriting? How does that fit into your life? What's your process, and how does that relate to kind of your scientific background? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question, actually. Uh, I, I think... Um, first of all, there's a lot of writing in science. I mean, you, you, you write reports and you publish papers in journals and, and those, those have a certain format and uh, they impose a certain discipline on you uh, and a certain timeline and a certain process. And I think that's, that's served me very well in, in writing plays as well, is that I think from, from discussions I have with other writers, I think I'm relatively disciplined um, and I'm relatively productive. Uh, and so I think the discipline um, even though the, the, obviously the content is very different uh, from science writing to, to theater writing, I think the, the, the discipline has stood me in good stead. And so to dig specifically into this play, Waiting for Hello, um, and also now knowing your, your roots are in Britain, and we have a quite obvious kind of play on Waiting for Godot, um, Beckett, right? We've got the Beckett and the absurdistic influence uh was there a specific prompt or inspiration what was what made you sit down and do waiting for hello which is clearly an homage to waiting for godot i mean and to beckett you you've name drop not name drop but happy days and end game i caught all of those little breadcrumbs that you left for us there so um how did you decide to to do this one specifically well, first of all, I'm, I'm pleased you noticed all of that um, in, in there. Um, it was delightful. It was like a theater person's like, oh, got it, you know. <laughs> I even had Crap's last tape in there as well. Uh-huh. Um, well, I mean, this is actually a, a, a bit out of left field for me. I don't normally write absurdist stuff. I'm, I normally write very naturalistic plays. Uh, um, so this was a bit different for me. But it did have a very specific genesis, yes. Uh, I, you know, working as a federal government scientist uh, here in, in Canada, um, about I probably wrote this about six months pre-COVID, so that's why we're talking about you know teleconferences and not Zoom conferences, but it could easily be adapted, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a whole series of meetings in other government buildings where I would you know drive half an hour, find parking, get to the meeting in person, there'd be 15 people in the room, but there'd always be some people who didn't come in person. There'd be a couple of different teleconference things set up on tables. 
uh, and we'd, we'd always go through this dance at the beginning of the meeting and literally the first 15 minutes of every meeting was this process of trying to connect people who weren't there in person from the outside, especially if you, they were also trying to see a PowerPoint presentation at the same time. Um, so we'd go through this, you know, this dance um, and at, for the third or fourth time that I was sitting there um, twiddling my thumbs waiting for people to connect, I thought this is just like waiting for Godot. This is this is a this is a you know a, fe a federal government um, situation very similar to that, uh, where we're all here, nothing's happening, uh, we're we're all pretending we're being we're doing something but we're not. Um, the other some nice little link um, being the Canadian federal government was the fact that Beckett wrote in French originally, um, and there's still French in waiting for Godot, and so the ability to have a few lines in French in my play as well was um, worked really well for for a Canadian context. You answered one of my other questions. <laughs> I wanted to know if that French was an homage to the French Canadians. Look at that. We were uh, I was right there with you then. <laughs> you're, you're on the ball. Yeah, really. Um, so yeah, uh, and um, so yeah, that, that that was the genesis of it. I mean, and I have to say, I mean, I, I'm not. I've seen, a, I've seen a few Beckett productions over the years and not been a great fan, actually, <laughs> of absurdist theatre. Um, and so I thought, well, rather than making people sit for an hour and a half or two hours in a theatre with nothing happening, here they can sit for 10 minutes with nothing happening, and that's just about enough. <laughs> and I was going to say, too, this feels like, uh, what was it? What did I write in my notes? Um, it's a more optimistic and hopeful waiting for Godot because these people do have outside lives which i loved it it does not you know the the existential dread that we often get from beckett is missing here in the fact that like these people have children who go to hockey practice and go out and there there's mention of a weekend you know well that's that's nice i mean i guess again that's a bit of recognition of the context it came from in that those of us who, who work in in the government obviously we tire of the endless bureaucracy which is the which is the real which is the waiting for Godot aspect of it, but we around the around the um, the water cooler we do talk about our weekends and our activities and our and the children or whatever. So you know that that does come into it. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm, but I'm glad that you you found it a little bit more hopeful. Speaking of uh, being in post-COVID, did you write this pre-COVID or during COVID? Uh, Pre-COVID, I, 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 I kind of resisted writing. A, a play about COVID for a long, long time. <laughs> uh, although I think most people that have done something now have, have given in to that. I, mean, I think if, I think if I'd written this during COVID, uh, then I would have probably given them video conferencing rather than teleconferencing. Um, and I have, I mean, I've thought about whether I need to rewrite it. Um, about you, Chelsea and Guy, but a lot of people have had such Zoom fatigue that sometimes these teleconference meetings, people turn their cameras off anyway. And I think there is something pretty theatrical and um, a little more Beckett-esque about the disembodied voice of not even being able to see. There was that I really did enjoy that aspect of it, that we were just literally waiting for the hello, waiting for the voice. So that's my two cents. I, I like that it's all audio that they're waiting for. Out of all the plays that we have done, even in season one and now thus far in season two, I would say Waiting for Hello 
tops out at one that I am dying to see live and in person because of how you set up the visuals and you set up these physical comedic bits, um, the whole thing with the phones changing hands. <laughs> I absolutely love, love, loved the image of the computer cable that we never see the end of. <laughs> um, that, like, I just latched onto that. You said that you tend to focus on dialogue, but to me, the visual imagery and the staging of this play was just very, very clear from the get-go. Yeah, uh, and that was an observation that I had when I, when I listened to the, um, the, the recording that, um, about the physicality. And uh, one, one sort of sidebar I'll say to that is often with these um, player readings, uh, I've often found that the, someone reading the stage directions can actually be quite distracting. But I thought in this case, it really added a lot to it. And, and mm -hmm. um, the stage directions being read about, the, for example, the phones being passed around almost became another character and I thought that that it worked really really well uh, it was very well done to you, you could you could imagine that movement happening because of how well the stage directions were, were read in that case so that was really good um, I, I've often in my writing I've worked with with a dramaturge whose name is also Chelsea actually um, and she, I think in this play she encouraged me very much to to bring more physicality than I would naturally normally <laughs> use um, and, and again, looking, reading through Waiting for Godot um, for the prompts for that. So in, in, in Waiting for Godot, there's this scene where they're swapping hats around. And so I kind of exchanged that with the, with the cell phones. And I may, maybe I'll come back to a word that you used earlier before I forget to, to comment on this as well. I mean, you mentioned um, the word homage uh, to Waiting for Godot. Mm. Uh, and I'm glad that you used that word. I was really concerned that it would be a pastiche of Waiting for Godot and, <laughs> and it, would be, it would be too much like the original not to have value in of itself um, so i'm very pleased you used the word homage which is perhaps a bit more <laughs> what i was going for so i did undergraduate and graduate school both for acting um, and performance and i have seen live productions of waiting for Godot. so i'm and other beckett so i'm fairly well versed in that and and gary our producer uh, really loves absurd theater um so like that is his jam and we have discussed that kind of stuff so that's a topic of conversation we're familiar with and i do think that because you had those direct parallels um it wasn't a direct mirror you weren't just mad living it you you were taking what was there and putting it in again a structure that you had experienced so I, I do think it was definitely homage and, and paralleled as opposed to parroted or, or mirrored. Um, that was my experience of it anyway. You took something that generally is very, very absurd and made it relatable. Now, in 2021, everyone has experienced a conference call. Everyone mm. has experienced a, a video call, like what we're doing now. You know, in, in my life pre-COVID, I was performer, I was doing teaching and I and I worked at a gym. There was no reason for me to really be on conference calls very often. It has been my life, you know, and I think that's most people have now this thing that used to be super absurd is actually becoming more and more real. I'm so curious. You said this was a departure for you. Um, can you give us, you know, an elevator pitch of one of your other vastly different plays? 
I would just love to know what else is going on um, in, in Guy's world. <laughs> well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll talk about more than one, <laughs> if you'll indulge, indulge me, but not, not yeah. 20. Um, so the, the one I just mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the one that will be produced in, in Australia, which is another 10-minute play called Chin Up, which, was, which is about COVID, but it's set, it's set in the future. It's set in about 2051 or something, uh, when there's been multiple waves of COVID. Sorry to be pessimistic, but there's been, you know, COVID-27, COVID-33, COVID-37. Um, and so at that point, we have people living in a world where everybody wears masks all the time. You can't trust anybody except who's in your bubble. Uh, and it's about, you know, how do you, how do you negotiate the first date when, <laughs> when you're wearing masks? And how do you negotiate who takes off their mask first and what that means? <laughs> the, the, the one play that I've written specifically for Zoom, because I've only written one play specifically for Zoom, which was for the Rule 7x7. Um, in uh, in New York, uh, and, and that was uh, sort of a virtual book club meeting where neither of the people attending have actually read the book, and they're both trying to sort of, you know, <laughs> blag their way through it. Um, and there's uh, and then the, the the last one I'll mention is a play that I is a full length play that I wrote that was inspired by being in lockdown and playing Trivial Pursuit with friends on Zoom. Uh, so it's a play called, it's actually called Green Cheese. I mean, the, the, the pieces that you use in, in Chill Pursuit, some people call them pies, some people call them wedges, some people call them cheeses because they're shaped like the player, but it's all about two couples trying to negotiate answering one question uh, to, to get the green cheese into the, you know, it's, it's, it's a conventional living room <laughs> drama. <laughs> Um, which but, takes on so, a new meaning now. But set around Trill Pursuit, <laughs> which of course is a Canadian invention, so it's got a bit of a Canadian angle to that as well. So that, that, that's a few examples. When talking about the other plays that you write, I noticed um, in this particular um, play that we're, we just heard, you have the characters as um, genderless, pretty much. Um, is this something that you do across the board when you're writing... Um, your plays, you leave it really open in that way, or or how do you usually go about your characters? Uh, I, yes, I mean, I, I, I deliberately try and do that. Um, I mean, I have to say, you know, coming from coming from the background that I do, it, it um, I, I tend to think in very in a very traditional way. Um, then challenge myself afterwards and say, you know, can I actually make this more universal? And uh, and whenever I can. Um, I, I, I do so. Um, so there are one or two plays where, where I do think um, the gender or the, or the ethnicity have to be specified for particular reasons, but I, I really try and not do that. Which is so awesome. I mean, I think especially as we're moving through the world and people are more and more seeing themselves in various ways on a spectrum as opposed to within, you know, I think we're starting to move away from a binary world and artists are definitely leading that charge. Um, I thought that was, that was really great because you are, it does seem that you're very focused on words and uh, dialogue and asking questions. And it's nice to know that you can have just like people doing that. <laughs> I, that I, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think um, Beckett specified that they have to be men. Uh, in Waiting for Godot. That's, that's part of the, the legacy that was specified and, and the, 
estate will not allow anything else. Is that correct? I don't know, Gary. We may have to fact check this, Gary. <laughs> fact check that. Um, yeah. In post processing, yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's I'm. You know, now that you bring that up, I'm so curious to find out. Yeah. So the state of of, uh, of Samuel Beckett is very specific. Beckett was too locked into the binary. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, but that's well. So there. There's another way in which. It is not a pastiche, but an homage because you've moved beyond that. Um, that's so interesting. Everyone, we've all learned something today. <laughs> I will say we love to give our playwrights an opportunity to plug themselves. I know you've mentioned uh, production being produced yeah. in Australia, and I know you have a website. Um, Gary can put all links in our comments section on the podcast in the bio, but we'd love to give you a few moments now to let our listeners know where they can find more of your works, whether it's buy them, read them, check up on you, view them. We'll give you some time to, to plug yourself. Well, not much to add, really, beyond what you've already said. Uh, my website, which is Slynn Development, is, if you're going to provide that, it's just my name, all one word, Um And everything is there about my background and, and all the plays that are available. I'm also on New Play Exchange as well. And give me some feedback. Uh, yeah, I think the next production after after this podcast goes live is the one in Australia so far, the next scheduled one. Um, so the last thing we do, Chelsea and I have three questions. We ask all of our playwrights the same three questions, just a little getting to know you. Um, and that's how we'll wrap up tonight. So we like to ask, what is a word that makes you happy or joyful um, or has meaning to you? But this is the most difficult one for me, actually, to come up with a single word. Um, I think I'm going to, as a scientist, I'm going to come up with a with a very utilitarian word. I think, which is which is just patience. Yes, yeah, something we've all had to cultivate in the past year, for mm. sure. Um, all right. So, what is a really cherished, joyful, meaningful place or location for you? So, I think keeping this into a theatrical context. I would say that um, my favorite place probably is in the wings of a theater when the show is happening. I think that's that's a magical place. Um, you can have you know two actors on stage with the lights on them, where all the audience is, is fixated, and then behind these like quarter-inch thick pieces of plywood flats, <laughs> there's this entire other world happening in the dark, in silence, there could be 10, 12 other people in there, changing costumes, dresses, stage managers, props people, and doing this amazing ballet in silence uh, that the audience never sees, um, but those of us on the inside of the production get to experience and enjoy. And I think that's probably what I think of most when I think about fun times in the theater. Oh, you're gonna make me cry, second time in a row. I know I was going to say the same. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> it is just truly a magical, magical place. And gosh, it feels like it's so far away now. Like, so, uh, but yeah, and how we take that. I'll never take that for granted again. I will never, ever take standing in the wings, watching a fellow performer or or, or a stagehand or I'll never take that for granted again. So that was a beautiful reminder. Thank you. Last but not least, what is an object that makes you happy or has meaning to you? 
Okay, and this is an object I don't actually have anymore, but there's a good reason for it. Um, and it, it um, gives me a chance to talk about another favorite place. So uh, another geographically favorite place of mine uh, here in Ontario is a place called Prince Edward County, which is, it's almost an island that sticks out in, onto the North shore of Lake Ontario. Right, it's a beautiful spot and um, very artsy and they, they, they make wine there and there's beautiful uh, freshwater beaches there. It's a, it's a wonderful place. Uh, and when I'm visiting there, I will often pick something off the beach, uh, pebbles or, or shells or whatever. So one particular pebble I picked up off the beach one time. And then I was in a production of A Man for All Seasons. Uh, and I was playing St. Thomas More. And um, as many people will know in that play, he undergoes a physical degradation <laughs> over the two and a half hours of the show, whatever it is. Uh, and he's in prison at the end of it and not in very good shape. Um, and what I didn't want to do was was fake a limp because that looks so fake. So every night I would put this pebble, this rock in my shoe uh, and then walk on that. And that, that forced me to, to limp for real. <laughs> I couldn't avoid it. Uh, so that it played its part then. And then um, a, a friend of mine back in the UK uh, unfortunately died at a relatively young age um, in his in his late 50s and friends had put together a, a can uh, like a, 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 a stack of stones to uh, to memorialize him in some woods near where they lived and so the next time I was over there I took this same pebble that I'd worn in my shoe on stage uh, as Sir Thomas More and put that on the on the pile of stones to commemorate him so that's it's in England now, it's not with me, but um, it, it served uh, many purposes, that, that piece of pebble. Oh, your answers just get better and more tender as we ask questions. <laughs> I'm just going to be soft. It's a good thing we only have three, because I'm going to, woo. Gary's <laughs> yeah. probably back behind the curtain, like, just laughing at, like, he's like, hold it together. <laughs> um, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Is that... Um, Thank you so much, Guy. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you, and we no longer have to wait for your hello, but we do have to say goodbye. Um, so thank you so much. My great pleasure, too. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> stop, stop making it. <laughs> oh my god oh, oh god hello 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 i'm sure you were all waiting for this hello um so <laughs> we are all just a little giggly being a little silly being a little absurd um we just finished our interview with guy newsham our playwright from waiting for hello and we are now joined by gary lee posey our producer and also director of this week's reading and we just wanted to chat with you about something near and dear to your heart which is theater of the absurd so yeah hello. i love it i <laughs> i was waiting for that <laughs> uh awful it's awful no uh no i just i just think theater well what i really liked about uh, guys play specifically was um, and, and you made mention of this in the interview Dana and I'm really glad you did is how relatable it is because sometimes it, he like guy mentions you know you sit through a theater of the absurd play and if if you're not really familiar with the the genre or excited by 
you know, having to work while you watch a play, you know, then you're sometimes completely lost. You know, uh, I just remember performing, uh, we did Endgame, ETC did Endgame several years ago, and we had, uh, there were two people sitting in the audience watching the show. And I was just, it, and I sat behind them just so that we could have three people in the audience, you know. <laughs> uh, and and one of them was like uh, one of my theater appreciation students from, from one of the classes that I taught. And the other one was her boyfriend. And part of me, I just sat there and watched the back of their heads, to the, which is, was his own absurdist play, <laughs> because one of the one of them had some kind of knowledge because of what we had talked about in class, right? And the other one was like, "What the <laughs> hell am I doing here?" Uh, and and just for people who don't know, Endgame, they're in the trash cans, right? There are two yes. people in trash cans, and then one person in a wheelchair. Right. Who can't walk and is blind, and then the other person, who uh, yeah, uh, moves him around. It's modeled off of chess, modeled right? Of chess. You know, being moved mm-hmm. around and everything. But but I think that is what's so interesting about Beckett, because like you said, I, I think you said it best when you said you have to work right. to watch a play, right? With absurdism, right? Uh, because essentially they're always about being trapped right waiting for godot we have the two characters trapped by this idea they're trapped by their mind that they cannot leave because godot is going to show up and so they are outside on this path underneath this tree right so they're out in the world but they are trapped in that location um happy days she's trapped in a a mound of of dirt essentially and game trap i was gonna say crap he's trapped inside of a cassette tape you know inside right so it's always about being trapped but it's again absurd where guy made this so realistic because how many people have been at work and felt trapped (laughs) like whether you're in a conference call or not but it's like what does that mean like another meeting that could have been an email like well we've all felt trapped yeah there's so there's two two points that I, i i will make to add to that the first is you know, one of the, when I was studying the absurdist theater, you know, one of the things that it talks about is, you know, what can you strip away from the process of theater and, and the and the things that make theater theater and still have theater, right? So, can you strip? You know, what happens when you strip away movement? What happens when you strip away the, the ability to see? What happens when you strip away stage direction or visual or, or you know, and it goes on and on. Uh, and so that was one of the things that they kept, you know, that absurdist playwrights would uh, would focus on is how much of life, how much of the process can I strip away? And so then and then you take and you look at Waiting for Hello and it, there is it's it's bare. I mean, it's just this bare room, you know, with this bare conference phone thing that we all know what it looks like. But, you know, it, it's just and, and then all of a sudden you, you you take away like the outside world. And you still have this story about this world that's being created here in this little box. And I, it just, there was just something about how approachable this play was for this genre and how appropriate it was for the COVID lens that we are been experiencing in theater. And, um, but yet at the same time, not about COVID. So again, love the fact that it was not written during COVID. Right. It was written six months before COVID. But how agree 
with you, Dana, when you said, you know, I don't think he should change it. I think he should leave it like it is. Chelsea, as someone who is not like I just happened to in my career, and maybe it's from being friends with Gary or whatnot, I've happened to see more absurdistic theater than probably most American <laughs> people have. Uh, it's not it's not a staple of Amer the American theater genre. So I'm curious to know as someone who like hasn't seen as much and isn't as familiar, what was what was your experience like hearing it the first time, doing some research? What what were what were you going through when you um It definitely for did this? I did understand very fast it seemed like this is British humor, like right away. I can't think of any off the top of my head that I have seen myself or been in, I don't think. Um but I listened to it three times back to back. <laughs> but I think it's great, though, because you really can make it into any message that you feel like it should mean to you, um, which I think is great. And I also did when I did the research, I was looking up Samuel Beckett and um, Waiting for Godot and, and noticed the similarities there. And also the biggest thing that stuck out to me is how it can go kind of in a circle like it's just this never-ending like limbo or never-ending hell that you're just stuck in and that really as you said with COVID times it just like really rang true especially for when you have the zoom meetings or whatever meetings you have you're like I'm just stuck in this endless like <laughs> bye and the awkward face where you're like trying to disconnect and if it doesn't work, you're just like, Ugh. and you have to hit the leave button twice. That right there like, should be a show, a, an absurdist play, Gary. Write one of just people trying to get off of Zoom, and that's the I show. I love that idea. <laughs> I mean, I think I wish we had been recording. First of all, when we started, nothing proves how relatable mm. this is more than how this interview <laughs> yeah, with Guy so started. Can you hear me? <laughs> which was. You weren't on the right, yeah, you weren't on the right browser platform for the platform. Guy's audio wasn't plugged in. Then he had his thing, and we were all just like, I can hear you. Can you hear me? We're can you hear me? And I was like, this is, <laughs> this is the play. <laughs> like, I was like, there is nothing more. And maybe that's just another sign of the times is that the absurdism reality. is yeah, becoming like, reality. Yeah, as soon as you get plugged as Mike in, we're like, <laughs> That's so true. Uh, I, just to yeah. piggyback off of something else you said, uh, Chelsea, was uh, you said it's like very British humor. And so I, I would just go to say it's European theater. Yeah, like the, mm. the, the European style mm. of theater, the advances that they have made in the form and the craft. Uh, I I just can't wait for it to get over to this. It can't get to this side of the pond quick enough, in my opinion. Um, but they, I mean, just, I, I think back to last season with, uh, you know, Maxine's play. Uh, and it was just, it, there's just something so raw mm. and so uh, simple, but yet really just evocative and visceral. Yeah. Visceral. I would say that yeah. European theater is, is yeah. tends to be more visceral than American theater does. Sure. And sure. I, I mean, it's a larger conversation we could probably have a whole episode on. But I think part of it is because so much of European yeah. theater mm -hmm. is nationally mm. funded, and and what? it's less commercialized uh, uh, in under the capitalistic rank, like. Yeah. umbrella that you we have right. in america you don't have to worry you don't have to worry about mm. m uh, making ends meet right 
because ends have been met. You just have to worry about creating the art. And that's what's so beautiful about European theater. Uh, and we just don't have that kind of system over here in the States. Modern, modern European theater is, is quite different than modern American theater. Um, and maybe, you know what, maybe Dana, does, uh, we've talked about these, how, what will theater look like after when we come back and, and everything. And, and it's just curious to me if, you know, all of these, uh, playwrights that are really trying to push the envelope and explore the genres and explore the craft and explore the form, we start to see more of that. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I still remember when they brought... Fiona Shaw's Medea mm -hmm. over to Broadway for a limited run. I took my mother and when she kills her children, there was the whole set was like very bare, like kind of looked like an underground bunker cave. And there was this like sliding glass door that led off stage into her, like her quarters and everything. And she's dragging the kids back and you hear the sound of a chainsaw and the kids are screaming, and then on that glass sliding door, you just see oh my splats God. of, like, blood, like, bright red blood. That's got to be the most, like, visceral, like, real violent killing of Medea's children in Medea. Yes, and they did that. And that, that would not have originated in a Broadway production. They brought that <laughs> over. But I will never forget that. I will never forget yeah, that. Yeah, it's 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 like it's like they're they seek the catharsis you know and um where sometimes i think a lot of americans are afraid to go to the catharsis yeah but interestingly enough i would say that a lot of the events nationwide in the past year year and a half have proven that we are right. in need of that and i would hope that the art that we produce now will yeah. continue to push for that catharsis that we need in society. Mm. I hope that it will lead the way. My God, I cannot wait to see what that translates yeah. to on a stage. Do you enjoy a challenge? Is your imagination stuck in overdrive? Is your attention span shorter than a Cubs World Series streak? Do you want your work read on Lights Up? Then consider entering our one-page playwright competition, Propped. Incorporate three of the following props into a one-page play. A mannequin covered with confessions. A decapitated head in a duffel bag. A stage ghost light. Green cheese. An old-fashioned camera. Two telephones. A cloth face mask. And a ring light. Create a one-page play using any of the three items and submit it to lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. If your piece is selected, we will read it at the end of one of our episodes. Now go forth and write. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. And Casey Keelan as the associate producer. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. 
The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. Or you can become a monthly subscriber on Patreon and get access to exclusive content. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. Lights Up is hosted by Anchor, a Spotify company. The easiest way to make a podcast. Thank you.